Hi everybody, thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today we have John O'Brien with us. John is a civil rights attorney. He is one of the people who brought forth the first critical race theory lawsuit with Gabrielle Clark that our listeners know. We've interviewed her before and you can find out a little bit more on crtattorney.com. Before John, we ask you about your experience in this realm. It doesn't, I know you're at work, it's a Friday, so I don't see a drink in your hand. <laughs> Water, oh, Powerade, okay. Yes, or, or uh, grape soda. Okay. <laughs> David, are you, um, are you teetotaling it today? I do have a, a drink and I did spike it with a little vodka. It's a, it's like a, uh, a sour apple drink with, with a little vodka in it. So there we go. Not exactly a martini, but something like that. Oh, I like that. I like that mix. And I'm, I'm just with my boring old Pinot Noir. It's, it's a Friday lunchtime, you know, drink, whatever. <laughs> so, all right, let's get started. John, you know, we are part of the same group email group, Stop CRT. I know of you because we've interviewed Gabrielle Clark, Gabs Clark, as, as I already mentioned. She is the first parent to, and you are the first attorney to actually do a lawsuit on critical race theory. Can you tell us a little bit more about the challenges of that and what you, where you're at now in that lawsuit and what you see as the future of this in the legal profession? Well, I would say the challenge is all the clients, all the parents or their children. There's a lot of attorneys eager to do it, I think, at this point. That wasn't the case when Gabrielle and her son filed in the fall of last year. That was still very much, you know, that was before, that was still very much in the wake of uh, Floyd and everything. People were very scared. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if me and Gabrielle were going to get bricks through our windows. I I guess she didn't get a brick through her window and neither did I. Well, figuratively I did, but but I I guess it's important to disabuse parents of the fear that something awful is going to happen to them. I know know a number of plaintiffs at this point who have brought lawsuits, um, mostly on the employment side, but they weren't fired. Their family members weren't harassed, you know, subsequent to filing. If anything, they, they, they got a little celebrity. They went on Tucker. They got a profile on FAIR. So uh, I, I do meet a lot of parents. I go to parent CRT groups around the Northeast to give presentations on how to sue. And I noticed they're all they're all scared that if they did sue, something awful would happen to them. That just hasn't been the case. But back to your original, interrupt me at any time, by the way. Um, back to your original question, I guess the challenge initially was finding local counsel because I was a New York City attorney and we needed local counsel in 
Nevada. So that took a long time because it seemed like an oddball suit. Everyone we talked to said the case was not worth anything, was only worth nominal damages. They said, and it wasn't worth the bring, worth it to bring. This is what conservative attorneys said at big conservative outfits. They also said that the case law was too formidable in favor of schools. I knew that going in, but I was also confident that we could punch a hole in that 50-year case law wall that had built up um, because the curriculum was so bad. And we went in with very sympathetic plaintiffs, obviously. Gabrielle Clark is brilliant. She's savvy. She knew to collect all the curriculum information she could before she even spoke with a lawyer. She, she had extensive correspondence with uh, school officials rather than phone calls. And that correspondence on her part was excellent. And so we had a lot to work with. And we were, we were put in touch, by the way, by Elena Fishbein, who I'm sure some, some of you know. She's a very canny, shrewd, Israeli American, and definitely a hero in this movement. So, but yeah, we didn't know what we were going to face. I knew we were going to get a lot of press. We got a lot of Twitter press. We got a lot of Fox press initially. I knew we were going to get a lot of press because before we filed, I wrote a sort of a cease and desist letter, a threat litigation threat letter to the school, which I think they didn't take seriously because nobody had brought suit on this issue before. And I gave that to Andrew Sullivan, among others, and they blew it, blew it up on Twitter. I think Colin Wright. And that was before we even filed a complaint. So, so I, knew, I knew the case was going to get press. And then the challenge then was to translate press into money funding because these suits aren't cheap. And that was a challenge. But um, I, I know it's less of a challenge now for the people who have, who have brought suit. So um, there's more people, more big fish willing to donate. And there's more public interest firms in the game too. So there are more options, it seems like, than there were when Gabrielle and her son filed. And where are you now in that in that suit? If you can well, say. <laughs> I so that the the suit is now being handled by Daniel Burr of the Liberty Justice Center, I believe. I took the case through the injunction phase, and Liberty Justice Center has been quietly and discreetly handling it since then. And they're on the trial track. 
dealing with a motion to dismiss. So that's, they're on the case now. Hmm. You said that it, um, be, it, it, you seem to imply that it was not as easy as you thought it might be to translate press into funding for her legal fees. Has that been an ongoing problem? You said, and it's been changing, you indicated. What, what has been going on in that, on that front? Okay, so we thought, I thought that we wouldn't be able to use GoFundMe or crowdsourcing because I applied to one crowdsourcing site and they rejected me. And you were hearing a lot of these stories in 2020. And then I know that uh, Jody Shaw, I saw she was trying to raise money on uh, GoFundMe and they tied her GoFundMe account up. And so I was worried that crowdsourcing wouldn't be an option. So we then had, we were getting a lot of press, but it was difficult without a, a good crowdfunding platform mm -hmm. to uh, raise money. So we partnered with a I partnered with a 501c3 to act as a sponsor and that didn't that heart that didn't really work out either that was IOF and they weren't very very able to raise money on their own despite assurances and so we still didn't have that much money late into the game I would say for financing a lawsuit now um, big donors are less scared to help out than they were in late 2020, and they will fund both private attorneys or they will, they will fund, uh, public interest firms. Um, and, uh, oh, also I think crowdfunding has become safer. So that's. In 2020, GoFundMe was serially putting the kibosh on, on multiple controversial fundraising campaigns. It could be Kyle Rittenhouse's defense, criminal defense, or my attempt to fund our lawsuit when they rejected my application, uh, one service did. I don't think that's happening anymore. So parents, particularly if they're affiliated with groups, I think should should have more success crowdfunding. And there's also alternatives to GoFundMe that I wasn't aware of at the time. There's Give, Send, Go, which I think is Christ, Christian-owned, so they don't care what... They're not as sensitive to controversy. Obviously, there's new challenges coming up, up ahead, like uh, PayPal's cooperation with American Defamation League or something. I don't know. But yeah, raising money is always going to be a challenge, but I don't think it's as much of a challenge as it was in 2020 for either a private attorney taking a case like this on. And public interest firms need these cases in order to raise money and attract attention to themselves. So. That's the long answer about raising money for CRT lawsuits. 
also there's there's a lot of groups mothers groups like moms for liberty didn't exist until somewhat recently no left turn for education is much bigger and they now have a 501c3 that allows them to collect donations so the infrastructure is in place now uh, if you're affiliated with one of those organizations, those national organizations, to uh, I think to raise money. That again, that wasn't the case. Gabrielle Clark was really, uh, and her son were really pioneers, and as a result, everybody else caught up to them. Uh, not vice versa, but yeah, I've, I've, Gabrielle's been very vocal lately and you know she is quite a, she's she's a uh what's the word i want to use i mean very courageous uh, leader in this because she you know she's been saying look she might even end up being bankrupt you know when this is all said and done but you know her her calling to do this because of her her son has been so strong that she feels that that outweighs any financial concerns yeah she's an altruist um, and, you know, I, I don't think anybody was expecting to get rich at the beginning. And, you know, she, she did this, she and her son did this anyway. Really, we were trying to fix a problem at, at the, at a most basic level. They, they really weren't going to let the kid graduate, William. Like they said that explicitly in writing because, because they didn't think that, critical race theory was actionable legally uh they bullied gabrielle and her son and they essentially put that into writing and then we found out a lot more in discovery too by the way what terrifies institutional defendants more than adverse verdict or a big settlement is discovery they're not going to pay a settlement their insurance company is they can shrug off adverse verdict what they're really scared of is discovery, where you can see how the sausage is made. You get the inner office emails, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes they're adverse to bad press, but it's discovery that they're really scared of. Um, do you see a new group of attorneys coming up the pike that are willing to represent people affected by? CRT in school and the like, or at workplace? Uh, yes. So there's a lot of local, there's a lot. I, I go around, to, as I said, I go, I've given a lot of presentations in pretty obscure areas on this stuff where there'll be a, a, a mother's parental group animated about CRT or something. And they are getting a lot of help from the local attorney. And so it's not just national public interest firms. There is more help from um, local attorneys. These local attorneys tend not to be constitutional lawyers. But you know what? I mean, Title VI is pretty self-explanatory. The First Amendment, um, you can bootstrap your way into becoming proficient in that. And what local attorneys do tend to have that constitutional lawyers don't have is a good understanding of local ad administrative and education law. So, so uh, they're good with uh, FOIL or right to know requests, and they're helping out there. 
And they also have a stake in the community, these attorneys. I'm talking about like Long Island personal injury attorneys or family law attorneys who didn't, you know, they're not idealists, but they have a kid in the school district and they're pissed off, A, about masks and two, about this uh, intersectionality CRT nonsense, which is Greek to them, but they don't like it. So, um, you know, Long Island's getting pretty hot on this issue. And Long Island has to have the highest per capita concentration of attorneys. They're not fancy pants constitutional lawyers, but they're good and they're aggressive. Uh, And they're in the process of bringing suits. So, yeah. So what made you interested on a personal level in doing this work and in, in defending Gabs? Well, I guess, first of all, when I first met Gabs, she had everything in place and that impressed me. Um, she had all the documentation. You seldom get a client who's that well organized. And then I met her son, who's extraordinarily compelling. And he is very precocious intellectually, artistically. Oh, there was that. But before that, I was living in Brooklyn and the lockdowns came crashing down on me. And then the shrill, obscene George Floyd protests that were almost daily and um, pretty white and hipster. And it just looked... Uh, absurd and ridiculous. I saw them doing lots of obscene uh, things to, you know, essentially middle-class cops. Uh, And I was disgusted. I had never heard of the term critical race theory, but when it started getting on the news, it became pretty clear to me that uh, you could sue on it. So I was a personal injury attorney. I noticed nobody was suing. So I saw an opening. I wrote a, I did some research to see if anyone had ever sued on anything like that before. I found one case that was actually still pending in Santa Barbara that was sort of on point. It was filed in 2018. Interesting case. It's still on appeal. I would look into that. People who are interested, that's Fair Education, Fair Education Santa Barbara. Just doesn't have anything to do with fair. But anyway, I used that case as a model and I wrote an article about it. And then I gave it to, uh, I post, nobody would publish it, probably because I don't write well uh, or something, uh, or it was too controversial. So I just posted it on uh, parental group, Facebook groups, also gave it to Elena Fishbein. I think she posted it. Uh, and it was, it was a roadmap for how to sue. And I wrote that over the summer of last year. So with that, I, I, I pretty quickly got in touch with Gabrielle who had a real practical problem. She and her son, it was not idealistic for them. Again, they failed her kid and weren't gonna graduate him unless he took his, um, racist medicine so so i've got a i've got a question for you yeah you know you you you, you've been at the forefront of this 
And it's really expanded as you've already noticed. A lot of the criticism around this comes from this, it, it's a conservative thing. It's a right-wing thing. So to sue on critical race theory, that's, that's um, that it, it automatically puts you in that, in those labels, with those labels. Do you see that as true in your profession that most people who are willing to do this are doing it from a kind of a political motive or is it more, is, is there more to the story? Well, I don't know, like certain organizations, I don't, I actually don't know if Gabrielle Clark's a Republican or a Democrat. Initially it was a Republican cause maybe, although I know Jonathan Haidt had written a whole book on it essentially. I don't think he's a Republican. So I, I guess they're, I guess proponents of critical race theory are trying to pigeonhole it as a niche Republican issue. It's clearly not. I do see some interesting class divisions. When I go to these, these parental group meetings that are sometimes in rural school districts, I, I don't think they're uh, Republican or Democrat necessarily. I think they're just lower middle class and they uh, perceive that they're, they, they already per perceive that they lost control of their country. And now that the, now they get the sense that they're losing control of their locality, um, their backyard. Um, you know, the local high school used to be a, a rallying point, something to be proud of for even poor middle middle class uh, communities. It was the prom. It was Friday Night Lights. Um, and now it's it's occurred to a lot of parents that. They just don't have control of these school districts and these schools that they're paying for. And they don't have the money to go anywhere else. They, they literally can't afford Catholic school. They have to go to the local public school. And they have zero say, they found out, uh, if they go to school board meetings or if they make a request for what they're actually teaching in the school the school board members are often out of towners suspiciously and all the mm. teachers and school officials make twice as much as the parents. So what happens? So that loss of control of, of your community is, you know, I don't know if that's Republican or Democrat. I think that may be more of a class issue, but I, you know, I see class move. I, I see class divisions within this move within the anti-CRT movement. Like, I, I feel like the people who are really doing the fighting and taking the risk are, are middle class to lower middle class. And they can't afford to send their kids to any other kind of school. They have to send their kid to the local public school. And they're the ones going to the, they're the ones called Karens. They're maligned as Karens. They're the ones going to the school board meetings with signs. Um, they're the ones who can't afford attorneys. They're not getting advisory positions on fair.org. Uh, they're not getting invited onto podcasts. They're not part of the salon discussion with John McWhorter. Uh, these are the people who are really on the ground taking it on the chin. I feel, I feel sorry for them. Do you think, uh, I know that, you know, Gav's, 
like I said, we, we, we know Gav's, Gav's biracial, but do you think that this is a white person's issue? And let me ask, tell you why I say that. Because I've been reading a book lately. I try to read both from both sides, right? So I've been reading Isabel Wilkerson's cast lately. And she, she makes this argument that I'm, I'm not buying into really, but you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in it. I want to hear more. She makes this argument that, um, particularly white people see their power being you know, devolved as these movements gain traction. And that this is, it's a white person's problem where they see that they're losing their caste status. And so therefore they're come, you know, we see this fight coming as they, and it might not even be, you, you're talking about lower class. It might not even be, um, what's the word I wanna say? Uh, they might not even be conscious of the reason that there is this anger, but there's, and they're saying, she, she makes the argument that you will see more white people fighting this battle because of caste, which, you know, plays in with class, which is interesting because the very first person who ever made this, uh, this lawsuit, Gabs Clark is not a white, you know, a white woman. But what would you say when you you were just talking about you go to these rural areas? It's this, you know, more of a class issue. Would you say it's also a caste issue or a race issue? And what you see of the people who are speaking out against uh, this loss of control? Well, I I think that the people who are actually taking real risks are uh, people who are middle class or lower on this issue. And so Gabrielle Clark uh, doesn't come from money, to put it mildly. Uh, that's an inner city charter school who was the defendant. And she filed a lawsuit. And uh, Jody Shaw was a law librarian making 35K, and she filed a lawsuit. So Tanner Cross was a gym, gym teacher probably making 35k he filed a lawsuit so um you know actually showing up at school board meetings and filing lawsuits is something that people do without mean people do who uh, don't come from money maybe that's because they're in desperate more desperate straits they don't have the alternative of sending their kids to a private school you know uh but yeah wealthy people who are animated about this issue, uh, they do podcasts, they do documentaries, um, they start journals. You know, they're not bringing lawsuits. And uh, frankly, I think they should be making appearances. Some of the celebrities, anti-woke celebrities, I think they should be making weekly appearances at school board meetings. Um, and, you know, doing a little more than the podcast circuit. I mean, there's practical action and then there's letting this issue devolve into some salon discussion topic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people have book deals now. You know, good for you. The people who are doing the fighting, taking the professional hazard of showing up to school board meetings with signs or bringing lawsuits. The people getting called Karens, people getting defamed on Facebook, people who can't send their kids anywhere else than the local school that's been taken over, the, the people who can't afford attorneys.
they're the ones who are really doing the practical action and they need more support and they need more support from the fancy people, uh, the, the anti-woke people who have book deals. There needs to be more in, I don't want to use the word intersection. It's uh, not a good word for us, but I do think there needs to be more cooperation between uh, middle class and lower middle class people who are fighting this and then the fancy folk who are board advisors at FAIR. So one last question for you, unless David, do you have another question? No, it's okay, go ahead. Uh, my last question, let me say. What would, so given that what you just said, that a lot of these people aren't the fancy folk, they probably don't even, know you know a lawyer or who to reach out to i know how gabs did it you know i know that she went through you know elena fishbein helped her you know you came on board what you you said that you wrote a piece on like kind of practical advice what steps would you give someone who doesn't have the connections on how to and i and i already heard a lot of this in what you said i mean take notes write it down in correspondence i mean you mentioned how gabs was so organized that it almost made it not easy, but easier. What would you say to someone who is facing this right now and they don't know where to turn? What were the steps that they should take? Well, we uh, I, I just started a, a, a website with uh, David Pifterak, who's on the West Coast, who filed the first employment CRT case. That's crtattorney.com. You know, and... Um, most parents right now are animated about masks and vaccines. The other big issue is right to know or FOIL requests. Uh, I think we have a FOIL, FOIA sample at CRT.com. You know, you can go to the other, there's, some, there's a lot of other resources. Uh, Elena Fishbein's No Left Term for Education has resources on their website, Parents Defending Ed. Uh, also, that's what's helpful. I would read some of the lawsuits that have been filed. Like, I think Kimmy Herman filed two on behalf of teachers. There's links to those complaints. And they're not complicated. And they often have pictures. Um, and uh, I, you don't need to be an attorney to see what's wrong about that or, or sort of trace the legal claims. And my, my complaint for Gabs Clark is on uh, crtattorney.com. You can also go to schoolhouserights.com. I also started that. Uh, that was my first website on the issue and my first vehicle uh, for raising money on it. You know, uh, Sloan Rackmuth. She's got great stuff. I like her. I like her videos. She's very practically oriented too. She just got hit with a, a lawsuit, by the way, by Republican charter school officials. She found out in North Carolina, it seems that a, a lot of the people pushing CRT and profiting off CRT curriculum are actually the Republican establishment. And when she discovered that, they hit her with a lawsuit. Um, and that just happened last week. And then, uh, yeah, follow, uh, if, if you're interested in right to know stuff, FOIA stuff, follow Nicole Solas and legal insurrection. 
they're real strong and she's real strong on the right to know FOIA request stuff. Should be able to find a lot of good samples and good pointers there too. Which is interesting what you just said about, about Sloan in the lawsuit, you know, again, that goes back to what I said at the very beginning. Most people see this as a conservative movement, but to see that I, I'm I'm interested in that. I'm going to look into that to see. Yeah, that. I would. I actually I would look into that too. I actually I sued a charter school too on this. You look at the um, you look at the Catholic Church too. Catholic schools getting into the uh, teaching CRT. There's a lot of documentation on that. Elena Fishbein just did a presentation on that actually, and charter schools doing it too. But if you hit a charter school, and I guess also the Catholic Church about this stuff, uh, Republicans are going to come after you because it's Republican donors who support them. So I think Sloan might have got caught up with the charter school mafia. But yet people need to disabuse themselves of the notion that charter schools do no wrong and are the solution to all these problems because a lot of them are woke. And also, I don't, I don't think you should be ceding ground um, and giving up on public schools. A lot of people don't have that option anyway. Well, this has been very interesting. I think you gave us a really unique angle here um, that we can explore more. There are other attorneys that I've had the opportunity to talk to who have represented clients in this arena, um, but you brought a very unique take, and I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you, John. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.